And I walked into these doors on May 6, 1996. Um, I didn't have anywhere else to go. Uh, my home group, uh, even though they haven't seen me in a while, is Tuesday nights. Um, I'm uh, in Centerville. What's happened is I'm in school, so I'm hitting a lot of other daytime or several other evening meetings. And as soon as these classes are over with, on Tuesday nights. Um, but they've been my home group since the day I walked in. When I walked in these rooms, you told me to get a sponsor because I had run out of ideas. I had nowhere else to go. I did what you told me. And this is what I looked for in a sponsor because I hadn't done it in a very long time. There was, there was this group in this corner up in the front of the room. And I don't know about you all, but I always sit in the back. I go to church, I sit in the back. I go to meetings, I sit in the back. Wherever I go, I try and sit in the back in case I want to leave, you know, because no one's going to see you if you're in the back, you know, that type of thing, so I can sneak out early. But there was this group of people, and they were laughing and giggling. Now, when I came into these rooms, I was not laughing and giggling, you know. I didn't know how to do it anymore. I couldn't even remember the last time I belly laughed. But I saw this one gal who seemed to laugh all the time. And that was Dixie. And I thought, I want her as a sponsor because they look like they're having fun. I didn't know anything about the program. Um, before I get into this, first of all, I want to thank um, Doug and his wife for having me over last night for dinner. It was a wonderful dinner. The committee uh, for um, hosting me. I didn't have to fly. I'm grateful. Um, <laughs> I am your speaker that's coming up from the farm team. I was not the original choice. <laughs> kind of, you know, they said spring training starts. Was it this week? We start with the ball games. Well, here I am. You know, I'm coming up. <laughs> um, I'm really honored um, being amongst all these icons. And in my world, in the computer world, icons are these little pictures on top of the desktop. They get you to where you need to go. If I need this software application, if I need to go on the Internet. And, you know, I never thought about this with you all. Polly, Don, Larry, Vinoy. And it's not a pedestal thing. But it's like if I want to quickly get to the Internet, I'm going to click on my icon on my desktop. I'm not going to have to go down into Internet Explorer or find the Macintosh, go over on the hard drive, and then I have to go through two more iterations. I get to click on that icon because there's a link. There's a pathway to the application I need to get into. And the application I needed to get into when I walked in the doors was this 12-step program that I didn't really know anything about. You know, I had, you know, you hear about it maybe in the movies or it's not something you discuss in your home. You know, nobody ever talks about it. Let's go join the group. But that's what you all are. You are the icons on my desktop today and yesterday. And because life changes and the people I come into contact with, I get to have different icons on the desktop. So you're my heroes because you are blazing the trail ahead of me. I don't have 20-some, 30-some years of sobriety. Whether it's emotional sobriety, 
physical sobriety. I don't know what we call it in Al-Anon. I never got to be allergic to alcohol. I never got that time out of being drunk. I never got to feel that Zoom, pow, bath. I take a drink of alcohol. Ooh, I'm getting tipsy. I'm out of control. That threatens me. See, I don't get to feel like I'm excited about taking a drink. I'm like, oh, shit, if I have two drinks, you know, am I going to sleep or am I going to puke, you know? And when I was, you know, when I was a freshman in college, and, I, you know, I started drinking, you know, we had, uh, I went to a place like UD. It was Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, good Jesuit school. We drank every weekend. That was our duty, you know. You went to class all week and you started drinking on Friday afternoon. And this one really wealthy guy had this big party in the fall, and I went out and got the black dress, and I was all dressed up, and there were X number of thousands of us at the party. Well, I had three drinks that night, and I was puking my guts out by 8.30, you know, at a frat party. The one thing nice is puke goes into black real well. <laughs> but I don't remember what I did the rest of the night. You know, I missed out on having a good time. I'm really pissed off. I want to have a good time. You know, I want to be in the center. I want to have to have the center of attention. But if I'm drunk, I can't do that. Then there's this other problem, my hips. My hips spread. You know, puts calories, you know, and I get wider. Like today, I almost wore red, and I saw Polly in red, and I go, oh, my God, thank God I didn't wear it. You know, they see our hips together, and they see how wide mine are and how little hers are. You know, those types of things. Um, you know, these are the things that I, who does, who don't, who, doesn't have the allergy to the disease, think about. In fact, these are the types of things I think about. Thank God I was only asked Thursday night. Now, I have been taught by my sponsor that I can't say no to anything. And if I have any questions, I'm to call her first. If I get any, if a sudden idea occur, occurs to me, I am to give her a call before I open my mouth. I will tell you later what I've done when I haven't done that. But what happens is, is last night when we were at this wonderful dinner that the uh, host uh, and hosting committee had for us, somebody started talking about this, oh, one conference in Kentucky, and there was a snowstorm. Well, I went home, and I was wound up, and I was cleaning and doing all this other stuff because I couldn't think of anything to say. So I thought, you know, I was looking for props. Well, I finally went to sleep, and Beth, I dreamt about Chuck. This is the deal. And this is the truth. I dreamt that this was moved to Kentucky. And only so many of us got to go. But there wasn't a snowstorm, but we were in this old brown building. And the Al-Anons were put downstairs, and the AAs were put upstairs. And then Chuck comes down and tells me, Mary, we can't take you because you're downstairs with the Al-Anons. You know? And I'm going, oh, thank you, God. I was so excited. <laughs> And I got up this morning, and it wasn't true. <laughs> I was still in Dayton, Ohio. So, anyway, um, so that's how I got here today. Um, I um, was born in Iowa in a very small Iowa farming community. Um, we had what we call the law of the land. Each town had a different group there. In my town, it was a German Lutheran farming community. If you went over to the next town, it was an Irish Catholic community. If you went over to the next town, it was a Danish community. I mean, it depended on, you know, the versions of Lutheranism back here. And then the Flemish lived somewhere else. And, and you know, each town was ruled by the ethnic group that came in. And um, 
From the outside, it looked like I had a pretty normal upbringing. Well, in that community, it probably was a pretty normal upbringing. And um, all I knew is that I didn't really like my life. That's what I remember the most, is that, you know, somebody's talked about the malady and the spiritual malady. But here's the thing that I can remember the most about growing up, is that I was never happy. You know, um, I can remember before we moved there, um, I was probably about 15 or 16 months old, and this was my earliest memory. My parents told me this was my age. I was standing in my crib in Omaha, Nebraska, and I was, I just remember being unhappy. I don't remember anybody doing anything about it to me or what, what had happened, but I remember the sun being kind of dull, and I was just standing in there, and I was unhappy. They, my parents told me I used to stand on my little sister who was born when I was 15 months old because she took my baby crib. So I'd go in there, and I'd stand on her. Now, I don't remember if she was underneath my feet at that particular time, but I still remember to this day how unhappy I was. Now, there were things happening to me that when I grew up, uh, the specifics aren't important. Um, I encountered some things little girls encounter that are not wonderful. And even, you know, as, as an older teenager, you know, the, the types of things we don't ever talk about. And if we talked about them, then it was our fault because they somehow happened. Um, and also that community, because it was such a small town, you never discussed your family. You never discussed that you had problems. You didn't have problems. It wasn't Texas, but may as well have been because um, everybody had party lines. You know, the dial phone came to town when I was eight years old. So they put a dial phone in our house. And then what happened is it wasn't until a year later it got hooked up. But we had a local operator. It was not a she. It was a he. It was Frank. And Frank listened in on every conversation or whatever. So you didn't even have to have alcoholism back there to be, you know, raised fearful of what everybody said. That just reinforced what was inside of me. So my goal in life was to leave that town. Ever since I was a little kid, I was going to leave that town, and I was going to go to Europe, you know. Um, I didn't know how I was going to get there. I just knew I was going to go there. Um, I was really into race car drivers. Mario Andretti was just a rookie. God, he was wonderful. And I thought, you know, they have an exciting life. See, I was always attracted to those of you that were exciting. Almost every kind of boyfriend I ever had turned out to be really big in drugs or alcoholics from that small town after I left. You know, years later, there's been some interesting stories. But I was, I'm attracted to you. I like you. And the thing about it is, is you were exciting. And if you were exciting and I can hook up with one of you, then I would get to be exciting. Now, here are my early days, how I tried to hook up with guys. I have discovered, particularly on this last inventory, I was really a bully. I bullied guys. Because in the 50s, you could bully the guys, and they weren't supposed to hit you back. So you could kick the shit out of them. Um, I did that. Um, I was in the seventh grade. I'll give you, I started out in kindergarten uh, bending straws. You know, because I was always put in the back of the room, too, and it's always with the unpopular kids. You know, I wanted to sit in the front. And I'm real obsessed about being, you know, popular, invited to parties and stuff. But the other thing that happened was 
by the time I was in the seventh grade, we had, we had to wear skirts to school in those days. And I don't know if you all had to do out here, but we weren't allowed to wear pants. So even when it was like 60 degrees below zero, we just put on our flannel line cords underneath our dresses, walk to school or walk to get the bus or however we did it. But I was, I was still fighting with guys. And I'd go after them. And I'd kick them in places they weren't supposed to be kicked. You know, on the school lunch hour. Then I'd get drugged into the principal's office. I was an A student, too. I want you to know this. I wasn't flunking out. I was an A student, you know, a bright student, making these choices. You know, I can't explain why I did. All I know is you pissed me off, and you really couldn't beat the crap out of me. Like, I could beat the crap out of you and get by with it. Okay, so I got a detention. Okay, so this happened. No big deal. But here's the sick part of the whole thing of my disease and how it's affected me. I've taken that same behavior pattern because I suffer from the disease of alcoholism. Like I said, I didn't get to have the allergy or any time out. And I have brought it throughout my whole entire life, whether it's been work, whether it's been personal, whether it's been social. So, um, it's, I've done some things I'm not real proud of. I don't have a real whole, I don't have a real exciting pre-story. Um, uh, first husband was in the military. Second husband is retired from the military. I just changed branches of the service. No, I did not love the military. I did whatever I could kind of to piss people off. You know, when they told me to do something, it was like, okay, and then I did it my way. One thing nice, I was an officer's wife living in Germany. Um, and we were supposed to, oh, Polly, I had more than one pair of white gloves. I had yellow gloves. I had beige gloves. I had navy gloves. I had black gloves. I had three lengths of gloves, too, because overseas we were supposed to have them. And then I had the gloves that were cut out with the fingers showing, you know, so you could eat at the table at the same time, you know, and have your gloves on and be appropriately dressed. I did all of that. But the neat thing that happened was I also got to work. Overseas, which is, was an unusual thing for the 70s to be able to work. I was in the hospital at the time. I was a hospital epidemiologist. And they were desperate for somebody. So there's a, the government has a magic blue piece of paper so I could get hired to work there. But instead of being just grateful, I rubbed it in their faces. You know, they wanted me to do something. Oh, I can't. I'm working. Like, you low life. And then... You know, their commander was always, or the commander's wife was always telling you how to behave. I did not like that officer's wife book. It was the blue book. Remember the blue book? So when I hear the words, the, the big book or the blue book, it's taken me a lot of, lot of years or time to get away from that gestalt of what was going on. And so consequently, I had a lot of things given to me, but because I didn't like being told what to do, I was kind of a bully yet. You know, I didn't see myself as a bully. In fact, you know how you just kind of go over and you kind of want to just kind of put a little poker in someone, you just kind of turn it a halfway so it doesn't really hurt a whole lot, kind of say a half a sentence? That's what I used to do. And this, is, this was uh, something I used to do to somebody in my life. Because Friday night was beer call and you had to go to beer call. Now there were ways of taking care of people that got drunk. You know, and there are ways of protecting, you know, officers that got drunk and good NCOs that got drunk. 
there were there was the deal. Now this is how I helped out my personal family that was afflicted by the disease. One night I was well, and one night every week I was pissed off. I'd rage at the kids and I'd rage at the spouse. So anyway, I I left the club and he came home drunk. Now we were living in Germany in these uh, big whitish gray buildings. And we were up like, it was about nine stair levels, three flights, but we had higher ceilings. And we had scaffolding up the side. We had giant metal doors. We had cement steps. Um, so they weren't like nice apartment buildings. The Armenians had lived there during World War II with their goats and sheep. You know, animals actually lived in these um, buildings. And what they did after World War II, they gutted them, took out the floors and the ceiling so they could take some of the stench out. Well, one night, the boy's father came home from the club. I wouldn't let him in the door. He had made it up, you know, all those cement steps without cracking his head open. We were being, our buildings were being sandblasted on the outside. There was scaffolding up. We were up three, three German floors from the bottom. He climbed up the scaffolding. We had these giant windows you could go, you could open. They were almost five feet tall and about, a little bit wider than this. And we had, you could open them. They were glass. We didn't have flies over there, so we had no screens. I looked out to talk to him as he was standing on the scaffolding. This is 3 o'clock in the morning. I didn't care what the neighbors were thinking. I was sober doing this stuff. I, don't ha I didn't do any of this stuff drunk except puke. So anyway, what happened was I decided he wasn't sorry enough. And I said, well, if you go down the scaffolding and come up the stairs, maybe I'll let you in. Because these were metal doors. There's no way, earthly way, he could have gotten in that door. But the, those are the things that I did. And when I had the opportunity with him, I put him down in public. You know, just that little bit of a twist. I would put him down, down in front of his, his peers, in front of my peers. And with my kids, I would rage. That's what I did, sober. Um, and then, um, and of course, I didn't leave him. He left me, you know. Why? Look at all the things I'd done for him. I'm not sure what they were, but I had done them. So then, enter husband number two. And I wasn't getting any happier. Um, what, it, what, it, what precipitated my coming into Al-Anon eventually was, we had just come back from Hawaii. Um, we'd been married, husband number two and I had been married five years. We had taken the youngest kid. Uh, the night before we're leaving on the trip to Hawaii, we don't have a place for the kid to stay. I'd like to blame it on everybody else, but it was my own fault. I didn't make appropriate provisions, and then I wouldn't get on the phone and ask for any help from anybody else that I knew. So we took him to Hawaii. It turned out to be a great time. Came back home and walked in to um, have four sons. One of the sons, who was in college at the time, was hiding one of his friend's brother's stolen liquor at our house. And of course, nobody would come to our address looking for stolen liquor. I went ballistic. I don't know why, I just went ballistic. Called up a friend of mine in Texas. We've been friends for 20 years. We've been through a lot of crap in Germany together. Um, you know, when you're living in small mountain villages and the husbands are gone seven months of every year, and I lived that way for 15 years, whether it was Germany or in the States. I was essentially kind of a, you know, single parent. I didn't have a sack pilot. Now I got a pilot, but, you know, he's gone at work now. So it's kind of like, you know, you move from one form of being gone to another form of being gone. And, oh, that's right. He was a sack pilot. I just wasn't with him when he was in sack. 
I was with the guy in the army. So anyway, um, well, he was in Grafenbeer, but I was, I was somewhere else, you know. So what happens is, is that I called her up, and I said, you know, I don't know what to do. And she said, go to Al-Anon. I said, what? She goes, go to Al-Anon. Then she went into what she, and these were friends of mine for over 20 years, what that had happened in their lives the last four years. And um, I thought, oh, my gosh. So I was told to go to Al-Anon. And in my thinking, this is what I did. I looked in the phone book, and I called up AA. I did not know there was any difference between AA and Al-Anon. I thought we were all one big, happy family, and we all did the same thing. So I called the AA office here, and they were really cute, and they said, what are you doing calling us? I said, well, I was told to call Al-Anon. Well, we're not Al-Anon. Well, then who do I call? They hooked me up with the right number. They weren't rude. I just didn't know. And I walked into these doors, and also, too, what Polly had alluded to in the military was true. If you're a wife and you're having anxiety, it was Librium, Valium, or Secondal. Now, I'm paranoid. You don't put anything in my body where I lose control. That is one of my major obsessions. You do not take that away from me. You know? And even though I never felt good enough from way back when, even though I never measured up to what you say, and by golly, I worried about what you thought of me. I put on an act, and I was bitchy because... I didn't want you all to know that I was afraid, that I wasn't good enough, that I didn't feel like I measured up, that there was something wrong with me. And maybe I was evil. I don't know. Maybe there was something missing there. I didn't know what it was. But all I know is if you all got too close and found out about what I was really like, well, not only that, you would go out and tell everybody else what I was really like. You know, and, and I had one of the gals that was living down in the apartment. She said to me, I have a couple of different names. So if you ever hear me call in Dayton, Ohio, anything other than Mary Robinson, it's true. I've run under about three other names, first and last names. Anyway, she says, Beth, <laughs> um, you don't ever let anybody get close to you. You know, every time I see you, if you have a problem, you pull out a book. I'm like, hell yes, Judy. I'm not going to tell you anything. You know something? She's right. She called a spade a spade. She is somebody I owe an amend to. You know, she's on my list because I didn't. So I walked into these rooms because I had tried a little bit of counseling. I'd already been through one divorce. I was ready to divorce. Husband number two. No specific reason. The two dogs were dead. I wanted to get rid of the four cats and the four kids. I wanted to go to Canada. Canada, they spoke English. With my background, I could get a job, but, you know, they can trace Social Security numbers. I now know how to change a Social Security number quickly so you don't get traceable. I didn't at that time back in 1996 when I walked into this door, you know. So, consequently, you know, I've been to some counseling, you know, intermittently. I've been to the clergy, you know. I, I prayed, you know, but God, I mean, I was going to church, but, you know, God just was not doing what I wanted him to do. And then, you know, I didn't want, like I said, don't take any drugs. No way. I didn't want drugs. I didn't want alcohol. I didn't want sex. Yeah, sex was not, sex was kind of a problem for me because I was a hospital epidemiologist. I knew about all those venereal diseases back in the sick, late 60s when you all didn't, you know. And I was worried about chlamydia back then, you know, because I knew it was untreatable. Now that this stuff is all out in public and the rest of you know, now you can understand my paranoia why I didn't want to get any of that. So, I mean, that wasn't even a relief. Okay. So here I am. I walk into these doors, 
And I, I went to a beginner's meeting. One of the men here, Dennis, he had that first beginner's meeting. And the thing he said that night was, you're in a car wreck. And you're the one that's left on the side of the road. You're bleeding. And you're saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. I have been fine my whole life. My kid's in jail. I'm fine. You know, husband walked out. I'm fine. You know? I mean, that was my life. I had one. One one event after another. But in these rooms, I found out I didn't have to say I was fine. I couldn't believe it. Then the most paralyzing thing happened. We went upstairs to the big meeting at 8.30. And they they wanted to reach out and touch me. And, you know, this one lady who's not here now comes over to hug me. And I whip that hand out like, hi. (laughs) I'm going, I see you touch here. I didn't know what to do. (laughs) It was like someone was going to physically touch me. And I didn't know what to do. It's kind of like you've been in a closet in the dark or living in Germany where there isn't any up right up north in the wintertime, and then all of a sudden one morning you wake up and the bright sun is out. It hurts your eyes. If you've gone 45 days without seeing the sun, and I've had experience doing that, and then all of a sudden the sun is out the next day and you're in this small, small mountain village, it hurts your eyes. We wore a lot of sunglasses just because... There was warmth and love. It was threatening. It was inviting, but it was threatening. Well, because I was all out of ideas, you know, and I was still worried about what the neighbors would say, the people at work would say, everybody else would say, um, and this is a secret group, you know, anonymity. I like secret, you know. I was going to follow because if you really kept the secret, then I could keep coming back. I had nowhere else to go, you know. So, what happened was I got a sponsor, you know. I asked her, and then they, you know how they tell you, you know, don't be afraid if the person turns you down? I was absolutely terrorized because I had nobody else lined up in that room. You know, I probably waited another three or six months before, I, before I'd ask somebody else. But I got a sponsor, and that's absolutely critical. And my sponsor said, you will go to X number of meetings a week. Um, I, I strongly recommend it. She says, you will call me every day for the first couple of weeks. Not once a week, not when you feel like it, you will call me. If I'm not there, you will leave your name. You know, she didn't ask me to leave the time that I called, but she asked me to leave the message. You know, I thought, that's great. Of course, I'm a date, time, stamp, person mentality because I have a strong background in contracts and warranties, so that would have been fine too. And the other thing she did, she says, we will start meeting. And she says, we will go through the big books of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, Nothing was said about one side being any better than the other. She says, this is where I found my recovery. We will start going through the big books of Alcoholics Anonymous. So we started meeting right away. I mean, we even met at the North Fairfield, close to where I was working at the time, over lunch. And she's saying, and, and, you know, reading out different passages in the book and things that I would be doing. You know, so there was no option. So I was going to, I started out going to four meetings a week because I could get, I could get to those, that many meetings. Um, the first year, I don't think my husband's here. Okay, I can tell this. Um, anyway, I went Sunday night. I went to the grocery store for two and a half hours every Sunday night for a year. I brought home one gallon of milk after being gone for two and a half hours. <laughs> I was going to Southside Lee meeting at 7 o'clock first. But, you know, I said, well, you know how I am, motor mouth, etc. 
So I did what you told me to do. Now, um, in the process we went through at that time, what was really incredible was um, I found out a lot of things, wrong things that you all had done to me. But there were, there were some glimmers of some things that I had done. So the thing about this, this process we have here, the, the program is just fabulous, is that I was going to come in here and I was going to do 12 steps, 12 months. I was going to be recovered. And I have, I'm going to have to admit this. I was going to be a circuit speaker. Now, <laughs> I don't want to be up here. But here I am, five years later, you know, because, and though at that point, in, as I was coming in these rooms and starting just to get a glimmer of recovery, I didn't really understand where it was going to take me. What's happened the past year and a half has just been beyond belief. Um, started a process. Um, you know, you know the whole thing, restless, irritable, discontent? Well, you alcoholics don't have a market on it. I am restless, irritable, and discontent periodically. And this was after uh, one of the women's conferences, and I was restless, irritable, and discontent at that, at that one. Might have been the one that you were, Benoit, that you were at, Benoit. And Benoit got to sleep out in the woods, too. You know, she did. And I, and I remember sitting there with my sponsor. I said, you know, I don't know what it is. She goes, I don't know what it is either. So what does she do within a week? Oh, her husband. Her husband's who here. Brant. You know what he does? He says, well, since you're kind of having a problem, he drops a bunch of tapes on it and says, here, maybe these will help you. You know? They were AA tapes. Can you believe it? Two AA guys had gone through this process down in Oak Street. One of them is here in this room. The other one has moved to New York. We heard the tapes. Then what we started doing is we started going to Cincinnati and going through the big books of Alcoholics Anonymous again. Well, I come to tell you, it was a shock in my life. Number one, the first step, I am powerless over alcohol. There was no question in my mind. I was powerless over alcohol and alcoholics. And you all were the unmanageable ones. And you know what happened? In the doctor's opinion, I saw myself. It's a disease of perception. It's a disease of the mind. I thought... If I had been in this program going to my three to four meetings a week, I was sponsoring people, I was doing, I thought, service work. But, you know, the deal was I never saw my own unmanageability. I thought I could still control my behavior as I'm ratcheting up at work and I'm in everybody else's business I shouldn't be in telling them how they should be doing. Have you ever been, and sometimes I wouldn't tell them, you know, I'm at work, I'm working with, I work mainly with men the past 10 years because I'm in the computer field. And you're looking at him going, he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. I know so long to this break. Wait till the long lunch hour. You know, I was monitoring everybody else's behavior, whether they knew it or not. And it came out in my attitude. My attitude was not one of gratitude. I was checking on you. And after all, I'm in program, and look what you're doing, you know? Real arrogance. So that's step number one. Really took me by surprise. And it didn't happen overnight. It just was like, you know, we're going through this process. We're reading this in the book. Why are we going so slow? we got to talk about these words. I don't care what this word means. But you know what happened was 
I got to see my unmanageability. I got to see what I don't have control over. I got to see that I am spiritually sick. In the back of my mind, I didn't think I was really sick. Even though I had been in these rooms for a couple of years, I discovered I was still lying to myself. You come, then what happens is when you get through one step, it's kind of like you get irritated and antsy, and it kind of propels you to the second step. They call these steps, they're more like challenges to me. And, you know, our definition of, of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Have you ever, have any of you ever gone to meetings with the same type of attitude? Oh, blah, blah is going to be here. We're going to hear from the same people, and they're going to say the same thing, and it's boring. I'm boring. I'm not listening. You know, I have a problem. Those people might, maybe they're happy doing what they're doing, but I'm making a judgment call. I'm comparing my insides to their outsides, and I'm making a judgment call if, they don't, if they're not doing what I think they should be doing. I'm making somebody else responsible for my recovery, for my attitude. Therefore, if it's their problem, I can't do anything about it. It takes me back to step one, doesn't it? Unmanageability. Sucks. Okay, so then we get to step three. Then we have to make a decision to turn our life and will over to care of God as we know and understand him. That has not been a popular subject with me. God never did what I wanted God to do. My idea of God that I've come to discover has been a go for God. You go here, then I will go for you. I gave God. I, that's my higher power. I just call it God. I call it him. I don't care. You know, I burned my bra 30 years ago with Gloria Stein. I did all that stuff, so now I'm at the point I don't care. I'm just glad I have enough that I have to wear one, you know? So anyway, what happens is, is that God's bigger than this. I, ha- I still have a plan. I still want to be the actor, but I want to direct it. I want to control everything. I am just, you know, it's like i got my fingernails. You know, just it's just pressed in this book going, you mean I have to do this? I don't like him. See, I have these fears. He's going to take my house away. He's going to take my kids away. He's going to take my job away, and especially my job. Don't take my job away. I mean, I've been laid off before. You know, I've been through some of that. A single parent, four kids, when you got laid off, and you're wondering where your next meal is going to come from, and you don't have a guy to live off and somebody to take care of you. But what happens is, is that I, I, was so, I realized how paralyzed I was. I, my vision of God was not a God of love. Because if this was a God of love, why would my life have turned out the way it did? What, if he really cared about me, and I was a halfway intelligent person, and I kind of sort of followed the rules, I thought, whatever I thought the rules were at, wherever I was at, does this, does this make sense to you? You're not really sure what the rules are, but you make them up as you go along and hope that they fit. And I did this sober. I didn't do it drunk. And I didn't have blackouts. And I was still trying to figure out what the rules were that I could be acceptable to you, that you all would want to have anything to do with me. And I didn't get to drink to feel that, to, to wonder what I was doing. I wondered that every day of my life when I got up. Will I ever be popular enough? Another thing, too. Here, here's another big fear of mine. Who's going to come to my funeral? I've been, I'm an old bitch, you know? But my, my sponsor asked her, answered that question last week. She says, Mary, don't worry about it. 
She goes, we'll have food. We'll have chocolate and we'll have coffee. <laughs> then we will load up vans and we will go downtown, you know, 3rd Street, 5th Street, St. Vincent de Paul. They're always hungry. We'll bring vans. <laughs> this is how upset. It sounds funny, but this is the truth. I'm shaking on the inside. I don't know what to do. I'm just trying to match what you want on the outside. I, I make real, I'm real careful about how my, how my clothes used to match. I mean, even one of your alcoholics knew, noticed it. He says, Mary, you're always dressed just so. I said, oh, you mean my socks always match my, uh, my uh, shirts and the little squigglies, which are paisleys, match exactly? Yes, because if I dressed the right way, then you all would want to have something to do with me. If I was intelligent enough or I was funny enough, and I was never funny. You know, when I walked in these rooms, I hadn't laughed in years. I didn't know what a belly laugh was. So what happens is, is now I'm supposed to turn when I'm starting to laugh and giggle and I have some friends and I'm supposed to turn my will, my life over to the care of God. I couldn't believe it. Who is this God creature? Look at my life, what he did. All right, I'll do it. I mean, it was, it was a process. It just didn't happen. And when we, when we took this third step together, the four of us, there was like a magic that kind of happened. I didn't, I mean, it wasn't like somebody showed up. There wasn't lights. There wasn't this angelic feeling. There wasn't music. But there was a calmness. I can't explain it. So great. You're going to go into the fourth step and you're going to clear this garbage. And that's what the step process is all about. It's removing that which blocks us from God. It's that one part of the three parts of the triangle. In this room, we all have that triangle. We don't care whether the circle's on the inside or the outside. We all have that triangle. And it's an equilateral triangle. Geometrically, it is. In the shapes, it is. So consequently, if one side collapses, if we're not doing one part of it, if we're not doing the service work, we're not attending meetings, the fellowship, we're not doing the steps, you know, the triangle collapses. We don't get to become whole. So anyway... Now, at this time, I'm still not thinking that God really has anything to do with me getting in this process. All I know is that my life was just becoming, just spinning up a little bit. I wasn't happy. I was going down to this. I had fun. It was Sunday. I was leaving, leaving um, town. But then also, too, what was happening is I was really beginning to feel squirrely. You know, it's real insidious. You know, you people are real friendly in these rooms, and you're real loving. But this, this, this plan of action, this precise methodology... You know, when you get sucked right into it, and all of a sudden you're in this fourth step. The first column isn't too bad. You know, you've got to list all the person, places, and things, and people that have pissed you off, right? Second column, you list the resentments. Oh, we can do this. <laughs> I'll get to the third and fourth. Let me tell you, it takes on a different form. Because that's when I come to the table on the third step, I mean, the third column. What is my belief structure? So I'm in the middle of a resentment. And all of a sudden, I've got three conflicting belief structures. I'm a good mother. I'm not a good mother. You know, um, I am uh, a good daughter. I'm a good wife. I'm not a good daughter. I'm not a good wife. And people should do this for me. And you know something? Somebody called a victim. But I had all these shoulds, what others should have done for me their whole entire life. I was not responsible in any way, size, shape, or form with the way my life had turned out. And when I saw that third column, I could not believe it. I was totally confused. And by the time I got to the fourth column, it was not fun. 
because the truth was coming out. And even the things that had happened to me when I was a little girl and I didn't have any control about, and they weren't very pleasant, what I'd done is I carried him on into junior high. I carried him on to high school. I carried him on into work. And I was defensive. So who was ever out to get me, I was always on my guard. And I didn't go after you or your job or anything like that. But I either kept you far away. I did what was functionally correct and appropriate. But on the other hand, I didn't do one more thing. I was not compassionate. I was not loving. I followed the rules. I was almost spiritually dead. And the term that comes to mind is spiritual greed. I was following the rules, and God owed it to me to let me in heaven because my life sucked. I was missing the deal. It was all out there in front of me. So then, of course, we always get to do a fifth step and tell this to, the, to our sponsor. It's not telling to the sponsor that's so hard because the sponsor's gotten to know me for a couple of years. But the reality is, is I got to see what I was doing and what I'm still doing today. So what do you do? You're propelled to the sixth step. You know, and for the first time in my life, I wanted to let go of my bitchiness because my bitchiness has been my defense to keep you at arm's length. I didn't see it at arm's length, but it's protected me because if you don't if you don't see who I really am, or if I show you how good I am, then I don't have to see how bad I am. Okay? And I do that seven step prayer. I do that third step prayer and the seventh step prayer of the books of Alcoholics Anonymous daily, several times a day. You know, and I never understood I always thought I had to be perfect to be acceptable. But if my sponsor and you all were perfect in these rooms, then I wouldn't believe there was any hope for me. I wouldn't believe that I could recover because I wasn't as good as you guys are. But if I see your defects and how you own up to them honestly and what you've done with your family and what you've owned up to with your kids or your husband or other people, that means there's hope for me. I get to recover. I get that, I may get that promise of recovery. And so now where I'm at, and I'm told I can't go any further than this because I don't know anything about it anyway. I'm on the eighth step. I have my list of people I get to go visit <laughs> for my amends. And there's a precise process for that. And I'm, I'm grateful. I don't have to do this alone. But here's the thing that I want to say to you. Um, when I came into these doors, and I've been in here for not quite a year. I thought I came into this room, I followed your rules, and my life was going to be better. I was going to be happier. People weren't going to act the way they had before I walked into these rooms. And the other thing was, is that life, you know, life was going to go better for me, and I was going to feel much better about myself. But I hadn't understood the concept that life happens. And we have to learn how to meet life on life's terms. So, I guess the reason I get so passionate about this stuff is you don't have to drink to die from this disease. You don't have to have the allergy to this disease. On July 11, 1997, I got a phone call. My second son, the non-hearing impaired one, I have four hearing impaired sons, they're all pretty bright. And um, 
actually, even with the one that was a, I mean, I've been places with those four sons as bright as they are, without drugs and alcohol. I've gotten to know the Montgomery County court system like nobody's business. You know, we got real chummy. Well, I got that phone call that morning about, it was about 8 o'clock. Um, we're working on a big multi-million dollar contract. I've been on the phone until 11 o'clock that night. I said, Jim, to my husband, I said, don't get the phone. I'm sure it's such and such. So I went and picked up the phone. Tom's dead. Tom's 22 years old. He's a wonderful kid. I wasn't kind to my kids. I didn't pick him, I didn't pick him up from school on time. I didn't attend all their games. I didn't attend, I have the old son. I didn't attend, attend his, his, he was a junior medalist for Taekwondo. I wasn't there. I was divorced, terrorized, and didn't want to be seen in public. I hid. And that's what the danger about fear is. You know, we cowards, we run from it. People that have courage walk through it. And in this program, it says we. We don't have to walk through it alone. You know, but I hid for so many years. But here it is. You know, he's gone. I couldn't believe it. So I got in the car like a crazy woman. And North Fairfield Road, he drove the truck into that uh, retaining wall um, out at um, the cemetery there, off North Fairfield. Since that, they've restructured it. I know there was a lot, I know that was because a lot of people went out there and they committed suicide. And that's, that's true. You know? So I went out there this morning. I haven't been out there for a long time because there's been some other things that have come up in the inventory about Tommy. And he's a product of the disease of alcoholism. You know, I had mentioned for about a year coming to Al-Anon. I'm glad when he brought his son over, I never said no about taking care of my grandson except maybe one time. And it's because there was a conflict. I'm glad with some of the stuff that he was going through, I kept my mouth shut. The one thing I'm not glad about is I had an urge after being on the phone at 11 o'clock that night, and I'm still struggling with this, and I don't have an answer, is I had an urge to call him. You know, those little things we hear from God that we don't always recognize. I didn't pick up that phone that night. And that's hard, and I don't have an answer for that. So what I did is, before I went out this morning, I don't know why I did it. I went to garage and got these goofy pink plastic flowers, you know, that hus the husband hates. And I thought, i got to drive out there this morning. I don't know why i got to drive out there. And what happened was, I was going to put the flowers, you know, kind of stick them in the ground. Um, one of his buddies had had, has had a cross up there for um, all these years, and it was starting to fall apart, and I hadn't seen it. And there it was in pieces lying on the ground. Anyway, I found these props, and here's what happens. If we don't do the step work, this is what's going to happen to us. As I mean, I, got, I did my fingernails last night for this thing. So anyway, I don't want to get them all scraped because I don't do, my, don't do my fingernails very often. But what happens is, is I was trying to move the dirt. It was kind of red. I didn't think of bringing a shovel. I didn't think of bringing a stick. And I wasn't going to go down low. I just thought the ground was going to be soft. It didn't occur to me. But the first thing I hit, this is a piece of the cross that um, old Tom made for him, you know, for his cross. Then the next thing I encountered was this piece of glass. And the third thing I encountered was um, this little reflector thing off his truck. This stuff wasn't even a half inch down. That's how much of the wreckage is still there almost four years later. So you know what this told me? This is what I had to look forward 
if I don't show up in these rooms and I don't go to the meetings. This is what I have to look forward to if I don't um, reach out to others in service. But in order to reach out to others in service, I have to have something to give. So if I don't do these 12 steps, if I don't show up and work this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, this is what's going to block me from God. I'm going to be emotionally bankrupt. And probably the only reason I'm alive today is I was raised in a tradition that, thank God, I was told I would go to hell if I did the deed. That's a gift. I see that now. I don't believe that now. But these are the things that my son, this is what I have left of him. This, these are what blocked him. He never saw what a wonderful person he was. There's some things I do know about him, and he couldn't see the beautiful person he was. Just as when I walked in these rooms, I couldn't see anything in me. And what I do know is God's always been there. Not what I wanted, but his overall plan. So if there's anything you can do for your family, whether you have kids, parents, brothers or sisters, or friends that are close to you, pick up that phone. Don't wait. Even if they're pissed off at you and haven't spoken to you in years. And do give yourself the gift of this program. God will show up. I didn't get here on my own. I can't really explain how I walked into these rooms because I didn't understand that alcoholism was a disease. My sponsor told me to go into the rooms of AA and go to the leads. I was a hospital epidemiologist. We put down depression as a diagnosis in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It was not the disease of alcoholism. The first meeting I went to, the first lead, was Doug Campbell sitting right there. And whose house was I in last night doing my first lead of this type of thing? And you tell me there isn't a God? And then, the plastic flowers, and I'm blocked. And this is what's been blocking me from God. And it's on my fourth step. And I got to do a fifth step. And now I get to do my amends. So maybe I don't have to die. I was in seeing the priest yesterday afternoon, and then I'll close. And he's not in program, but um, um, and I'm doing I'm doing some volunteering at the school, um, not because I'm wonderful, but you know just how you're kind of sent on these assignments. And I'm learning a lot about what a you know what a bully I was like in the seventh grade. But what I but what was so interesting, he said to me was um, the youngest son is a junior, and he said. And he doesn't know he doesn't know the family and all the past history or anything like that. And he said to me, he says, Bessie, Jacob, he's really great. And I said to him, Mark, the other three boys did not have the mother that Jacob has. That's the gift of this program. I get a chance at being a different type of mom. I get a chance at being a different type of wife. I get a chance of showing up for work and not ripping someone's ass apart, you know, or putting them down in front of somebody else. I get a chance to have friends, you know. What more could anybody want? It's what you call having it all. 
I want to thank you all for listening to me today. Thank you all for asking me. I guess I needed to say this, and I didn't know it, and I love you all very much.